September 2019. My name is Tom Chick, and I am not playing Agricola. And this is Asan Lopez, and I am not playing Cosmic Encounter this week. Mm. And this is Mike Pullman, and I am not playing Star Wars Rebellion. Oh, right, but you are, however, Mike Pullman, playing another new hotness game uh, that Hassan and I want to hear about. Yeah, I've been playing uh, Wingspan. I actually managed to get my uh, hands on a copy finally. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been a little bit in demand and uh, possibly artificially scarce in the market this Mm -hmm. year, but (laughs) we won't dive into that topic. (laughs) Um, So I played it for the first time last night. Uh, We played it two times, me and my wife. very interesting kind of tableau building game where you're drafting these birds every single card's unique Um, they have powers on them Uh, you have to uh, get uh, resources to feed them put in the right habitats so um now real quick i want to ask you what kind of powers do birds have (laughs) (laughs) it all just feeds into the i don't know if you'd call it an engine builder or not uh but the way the the board is laid out there's uh three rows of five for birds uh, and then in each row, there's you're activating a certain power. So, for example, the top row, if you're doing an action in that row, or in that row, it is to gain more food tokens. Uh, middle row, it is to lay eggs, and the bottom one is to get more cards. So each car uh, bird you're going to play has a cost associated with it. It might need uh, you know a berry and a little uh, they call them caterpillars, but invertebrates. So it might show two icons that you need to play uh, to play this bird. And then it will say it can live in one of these three habitats. Uh, those three rows I mentioned are uh, trees, grassland, and water. Mm-hmm. So some birds, you know, they can only live in the trees, or some can only live in water, uh, and some are uh, multifunctional and going in uh, in different ones. <clears throat> so uh, you have uh, these little action cubes. It's not really a worker placement game, but you have so many actions per round. Um, so you uh, say I'm going to play a bird. It's one action. I'm going to pay his two food costs, place him in the uh, the tree row. And then the rest of the row that's not filled in by your bird cards has little icons that activate if you use that row from then on. So if you have, um, for example, the, the, the top row, uh, when you get food at the very basic level, you get one piece of food. If you manage to fill in the bird so it's covering up those spots, way over on the right-hand side, you'd get three food. So you are kind of strategically placing birds um, to cover up uh, the lower powered spots that then uh, let you do more, draw more cards, get more eggs. Again, why <clears throat> am I tempted to call it a worker placement game? Uh, I mean, you are you're, you're, you can do these eight things per round, and actually they decrease per round. So the first round you get eight, and then seven, then six, then five. It's only a four-round game. I kind of like that, by the way, that structure where... Uh, as the game goes on, you have fewer things you can do, rather than as the games go on, you have more things you can do. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an intriguing approach, inverting that and, pyramid. Yeah, and, and your powers are going to be ramping up in, in their impact on the game. So right. it, it kind of makes sense in terms of controlling how how long and complex the end game is going to get. Right. Yep. Uh, another game, Architects of the West Kingdom, did a similar thing. That one then actually is a pure worker placement, but you start out with all your workers and they decrease as the game goes on. That game also does not have birds with powers. (laughs) No, it doesn't. (laughs) So uh, on each uh, round, uh, there's four rounds to the game. You randomize these goals, and it might say, have the most eggs on birds in grasslands. And then you kind of compare it in the round to the other players. You know, I had the most, so I get five points. I had the second most, I get four points, and so on. 
Uh, and then the in addition to just playing birds, like I alluded to before, you can activate one of those three rows. And you put a cube on the first open space in the row, which will say, you know, go get three pieces of food or two cards or whatever. And then you kind of march that cube back along the birds already in the row. And those that's when their powers usually come into play. Uh, it might say, when this bird activates, uh, add an egg to it. Or it might say, when this bird activates, switch it to another row. So you kind of are looking for the combos you can build with these bird powers. Uh, and it actually kind of matters the order you put them in, because sometimes they're complementary. Right. So what? why is this game so successful? Uh, why did this game get prominent coverage in, I think, the New York Times? What is the big deal uh, about this game? I... I mean, I think it's a decent game. I don't think it's amazing. Um, the subject matter is, you know, I haven't seen a game about birds before. Maybe there is, but I haven't seen one. Uh, every single card in the game is a unique bird, so there's almost 200 of these car, uh, birds. And they try to go for some scientific accuracy, like the uh, each bird has a capacity for how many eggs can be put on it. Um, and the, uh, the birds in real life that have big, huge, uh, uh, you know, amounts of eggs they put in their nest are similar to the ones on the card. Um, and then their abilities are kind of similar too. Um, for example, we ran into a bird that in nature puts its own egg in other uh, birds' nests to try to infiltrate it. I think it's called a cowbird or something. And then on the cowbird in the game lets you put eggs on other birds in your in your tableau. Mm-hmm. So it's you know it's it's a little bit I wouldn't call it educational, but it's you know at least dealing with the subject in a somewhat realistic manner. And certainly the, the way the artwork and the information, the what you might call flavor text on each card, the way that's presented feels very uh, Audubon society, you might say. Yeah, and it has, it has really nice art. Uh, components are really nice. Um, uh, you know, Stillmeyer think... usually does a pretty good job uh, producing their games, so that's that's apparent. Yeah, I, th- I think it's. I think one reason why it's become a hit is because it is so welcoming, right? I think that if you think of it as a game that, that showed up in the New York Times and is possibly going to be an introduction to modern board gaming for a new, a new generation or for the millennials that are kind of hopping on the bandwagon. I think this is, it's just so welcoming compared to something that's more confrontational or something that's overly complicated. And yet I think at the same time, it has just enough intellectual heft that you feel clever when you're playing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think you have to have a, a board game background to jump into Wingspan. Was that your was that your feeling, Mike? Was like is this something that pretty much you know again instead of showing someone Carcassonne or Settlers, you would show them Wingspan instead? I think on first glance, a non-board gamer would be intimidated just by the number of pieces. Yeah, you know, it comes with I don't know how many of these 50, 60 eggs, which of different colors. The colors don't even matter, but they're just all these pieces laid out in front of you. They look like um, candy too. I want to eat them. They're, they're definitely like little. They're, co- like they're, those, they're uh, color of like little mints or lozenges. Those yeah. little Cadbury mini eggs. Exactly yeah. right. There should be chocolate in them. You look at them and you think, yeah, I bite into that. It's going to be chocolate in there. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think after someone sits down and tries it, they get the hang of it. We actually played twice because the first game was just kind of learning the rules and we're like, oh, now I see how this all kind of fits together, um, because. You know, looking ahead at the powers and how you're going to have them interact, and also just planning for the goals is is really important. Um, oh, one thing I forgot to mention is you get secret goals too. Um, you start out with two bonus goals and you get to keep one, and then various birds let you get additional goals. So at the end of the game, you get a bunch of bonus points for say having the most uh, the most birds with eggs on them or the most kind of bird in a row, and that kind of thing. 
and that also that gives you uh, something to go for early on. Like, okay, here's here's my overarching approach to to my engine. Here's what I need to do to to, to build my engine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm by no means an expert on the game so far, but it very much seems like it's hard. You know, they've it's got that balance where it's hard to do everything, so you have to kind of right. choose where you're going to specialize because there's just not enough cards and resources to get you, you know, everything filled in on your board. How interactive is it among the players? It is not very interactive. <laughs> I would say there not are, at all, yeah. There are some powers, uh, like, you know, anytime uh, a predator activates uh, one of your opponents. Uh, so if you have a, a bird, say an eagle or a falcon or something, you usually have draw a card, and if the bird that you draw is smaller than X size, you get a piece of food, which is a point at the end of the game. And I had some birds where if my opponents were doing this predator ability, they would get an extra thing, you know, an extra egg or a piece of food or something because they were vultures. So yeah, kind all of, the I'm, all the interaction is a positive reinforcement. Like all the interaction is accidentally helping other players. I think. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the only thing that is common is the food. So there's this little dice tower. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I guess you can take a piece of food someone else might want. Yeah. Yep. And you roll these five dice uh, that have different, that have five different kinds of uh, food on them. Uh, fish and rodents and so on uh, and then you know if i can see my opponent is really needs a, a rodent for next turn to activate a power i can grab that so they don't have it available but that is probably the limit of the interaction it comes with that dice tower yeah oh i thought that was some bonus thing wow a game that actually comes with a dice tower i'm not sure i've heard of that before do you guys know of another game that comes with a dice tower uh, oh, El Grande! Isn't there like some uh, Euro game called El Grande or something? There's a, yeah, there's a tower in El Grande for sure. I'm not sure okay. if it counts as a dice tower, but yeah, I mean, oh. I think this this is an example of I think uh, you know, Stegmeier just they've invested so much now in making their games luxury products. That's another right. I think reason for the the popularity of his line of games is that you know you're going to get something that is at least on the face of it just gorgeous and beautiful. And again, that's it, it has table presence and it draws the eye and takes good pictures, right? Which yeah, I mean, even the, even the manual is, you know, printed on really nice paper and, you know, these mats you're playing on fold out and they almost feel kind of leathery, really high-quality cardboard. Now, I hate that this is actually something that we would even remark on, but uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's uh, designed by a woman, right? Like, isn't the, the designer uh, some woman? And it's, I believe, her first board game or am i just making that up uh it's her i don't know if it's her first but it's the first one that really kind of got popular okay uh, her name and did she Liz also do her own artwork or did i make that up i don't know if she did the artwork or not okay I'm okay That's right. uh, her name's elizabeth hargraves i believe so but yeah it's um you know she came to this to uh stonemeyer with this game and then they they published it she had developed it on her own mm-hmm. I, it's certainly something i've i've played uh so one of the folks in our group has a copy, and uh, it's something she's really into, and she she really likes it a lot. So it gets played a fair amount, not necessarily because I ask for it, but because she's fond of it. And it's, as you say, uh, welcoming is a good way to put it. Uh, mm-hmm. Hassan, you also used the sense that it has this intellectual heft, uh, and I think it is kind of illusionary in a way, but it definitely has that sensibility. Uh, so for some of the more casual folks in our group, I think it's, it's popular as well. Um, but I personally, and I don't... This may sound more negative than I intend, but I feel like I've seen all of it I need to see. Uh, (laughs) I've maybe played it four times, and that seems to me about two times too many. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So, but but very simple, very straightforward. And I, I guess to my surprise was I knew how difficult it was to get. I knew it had this uh, this article. I think it was the New York Times. This really mm-hmm. prominent placement in mainstream media. Uh, and so when I sat down to play it, I was expecting, I, I guess, more um, th- than what it is. But uh, yeah, definitely a gateway game, and certainly better than something like, uh, you know. Y- Pandemic, for instance. I hate this idea that people sit down with their friends and think pandemic is a good way to get someone into board games. This right. is the sort of thing way, way better. Yeah. Right, because pandemic, you know, you always, you, you know, you always joke that it's a solo game, but at the very, you always have the experienced person essentially running the new players. Um, well, plus whereas... it's also a very negative experience. Like it's a very punishing experience. Right, pandemic right. stops you from doing things. It's it stymies you. It hits you with these negative reinforcements. It's it's constantly saying no or you can't yep. or you won't. Uh, and Wingspan never says anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they definitely. Now, you have agency to play it, make your own decisions. Um, you may not do the best on creating combos and things your first game, right. but at least you're going to get the concept of the game and feel like you you did something. Yep. Now, what, one critique I have definitely of Jamie's games and I know this isn't one of his designs but I think everything that comes out of his company I have this feeling about it is that it's they're almost too finely tuned and balanced that a lot of the flavor is is taken away from it like did you get the sense that like there's actually not that much variety among the different birds and that really they're playing around with just a few different ideas here and tweaking them just so carefully that it doesn't really matter what you do. You're still going to get points for this and that and the other thing. There's definitely a, a pretty good variety of powers for the birds as far as what they do, but you're going to see common themes, and they group them by type of birds. Um, like I alluded to with the vultures before, I had a couple of them that did the exact same thing. Mm. Uh, and this, you know, sparrows are the ones that move between uh, the rows and so on. So it's, you know, all the similar birds will act kind of the same way, but they'll have you know different food requirements or they're worth more victory points at the end. Right. Um, but, I, you know, I, I've only played it twice, so I haven't even seen all the birds yet, obviously. So I think when you say that it has 200 unique birds, which it does, that is technically mm-hmm. correct. Uh, that's a little misleading because among these 200 unique birds, a lot of what makes them unique is, is very minute details. Correct. These 200 right. b- birds have maybe about six, seven verbs among them, uh, mm-hmm. and it's just a variety of this bird can do this one well and these two not very well. Like it's – uh, it's definitely not 200 unique playing pieces. Uh, it's 200 yep. unique cards, and amongst them, they've got a handful of verbs that they many of them share. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So, uh, wingspan. Um, is this still really difficult to get, Mike? What, what's the current situation with stock? Could I go to your store? Could I go to Amazon.com? Actually, that might be opening up <laughs> a can of worms. <laughs> but uh, how hard is it now to find wingspan? Do you have a sense? For it that? is. Uh, it is easier to get than it was earlier this year. Um, okay. Shipments to uh, local game stores are still fairly limited, uh, but it pops up on Amazon and uh, it was on Bed Bath and Beyond of all places for a while. <laughs> what? Oh my god! <laughs> I thought it was weird that Jaws was a Target classic, but Bed Bath and Beyond was a Target uh, exclusive. Bed Bath and Beyond getting wingspan. Wow. Uh-huh. Uh, and is the price point? Is that affected the price point, or it's still just a regular what, fifty dollar game? It's, uh, I think we sell it for 40, um, okay, but right. it's right in that range. You know, there was, earlier this year, there was a large secondary market. People were selling their copies for a couple hundred bucks. Right. That seems to have died down largely. Right. All right, he, well, he, yes, go he's ahead. A master, he's a master of marketing, right? I mean, clearly the the demand for this game is not purely a reflection of the quality of the game itself. I think it's a high-quality game, but there's a lot more going on here than, than just that. Yeah, yeah, so... 
Uh, well, before we talk about the euro, would you call this a euro? It's a euro, right? Wingspan? It's, it's a euro. The only randomness is, uh, you know, which cards you get. Um, oh, the dice. I guess the, the dice for the food. Yeah. Uh, but there's still a lot to do outside of randomness determining your fate. Actually, this is a dumb question. Is, uh, is the amount of randomness a factor in whether something is a euro? A lot of people like to say that Euro games should have no randomness whatsoever, so you can just solve them. <laughs> but, yeah, that it, American games tend to have more of the random factor, lots of dice rolling and so on. I think my approach to the difference between Euro and Ameritrash has been like that famous uh, canard about the Supreme Court and pornography. I'll know it when I see it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if someone were to, you know, it just now occurred to me, if someone were to ask me, okay, define a Euro, I'm not sure I could. I could throw out games that I think are Euros, but, uh, well, the one I'm going to talk about is definitely a Euro. So before we get to that, I want to hear, because I think, Hassan, yours is classic Ameritrash, right? Yeah, uh, you know, I think it's it's uh, it's definitely heavily in that end of the spectrum but it's been influenced by by the european game design philosophy whatever that is um okay. in the sense that it's been heavily streamlined maybe a lot of the fun has been stripped out of it that's what makes a euro game oh snap <laughs> <laughs> well no i this left. is something that i was super curious about uh and i'm kind of surprised i don't have it yet so either sell me on or wave me off of starship samurai all right all right so this is a game by Plaid Hat, and the designer is Isaac Vega, who's done some pretty cool stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I think he's a guy with a lot of creative ideas and cool ideas, and he does tend to lean a little bit more on the Ameritrash side, So, and that's where I tend to lean, so I, I tend to pay attention to what he's doing. But the, the one-line sort of sell for this game is that it's a streamlined sci-fi area control game about colossal samurai mechs battling in outer space so how do you guys feel about that i'm down with that so far that's yeah that's why i'm surprised i don't own this yet <laughs> right. um yeah it sounds fucking great but I, it didn't sell particularly well i i think and i think it was it was damned by faint praise and i i after having now played it i think i understand where the where the faint praise is coming from it's not a terrible game by any means i think BGG gives it, I think the the overall mean there is somewhere around a 7.1, and that actually feels about right, right? It's mm -hmm. not, it's not an awful game, but in this world and market where you, we have so many awesome games to choose from, I can see why people might have picked it up, played it once, and then decided that they that they didn't need to play it again. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, it's 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 it is an Ameritrashy area control game that I think was designed to play very quick and fast. You're supposed to be able to finish this in 60 to 90 minutes, and you can almost think of it as like a, a Twilight Imperium, very light experience that you can fit in an hour to 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to be controlling a bunch of ships. Um, sending them out to various planetary locations to exert control over those locations. Your goal is to earn the most honor throughout the course of the game, which is just victory points. The, the two most prominent ways to earn honor are to win battles, and the other is to have influence with um, a variety of different clans in this universe. And I, I think of the clans as kind of like minor factions that are kind of on the sidelines watching the players exert dominance in the galaxy. And if you exert influence with them, you can gain points in that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's got, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, well, there, there, there's a very simple action economy to the game. And I think that's where it's streamlined 
sort of philosophy is is its strongest. You have a set of order tokens numbered one to four, and you on your turn you just very simply choose one of those tokens and you assign it to one of the four possible different actions you can take. You can you can move influence tokens up and down these tracks for these various clans. Really simple. You can use your token to gain money. You can use a token to draw super awesome power cards that will break the rules of the game, or you can use a token to move units around the, 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 the galaxy. And the strength of your action is determined by the numerical value of the token you play. So if I played my four token to gain money, I would get four space credits. If I played my one, I would just get one space credit, right? So you have this simple action economy where you're, you, you want to save your four for the thing that's most exciting and most important to you, um, but they, they're all good. All of those actions are pretty good. The, the most exciting one is definitely move units. So if you, if you want to focus on the area control fighty aspect of the game, you're mostly going to be assigning your order tokens to that particular action. Is the um, idea that it goes around the table round robin and everybody uses one token, or are we pre-assigning all four of our tokens? Why aren't I using my four every time? No, you, you, you are using your four. It's just one at a time. So if it's my turn, I might assign my three to gain money, and then it goes to you, Tom, and then I you see. assign your two to do something, and then it comes back to me. And I can even use my, my four tokens to do the same action four times. So I could actually, you know, this would be crazy, but I could use every one of those tokens just to gain money, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. Um, I will say that one one interesting aspect of the game is I've been playing a lot of games like this lately where turn order kind of matters in an interesting way. And this is true for a lot of area control games where on the one hand, if you go early in the turn order, you can jump to a system before everybody else. And there's a limited number of spots on these systems. So you can even kind of clog up a system with your ships if you get there first. But the advantage of going later in turn order is that you get to see what everybody else does, and then when they have no more actions to take, you can you can jump in safely. Mm -hmm. um, because this is a game where the board position changes dramatically or can change dramatically very quickly, and you might find that awesome or you might find that disconcerting. I think it's something it's something that I, I struggled with a little bit. It changes because people are moving ships around. You mean? Yeah, I think that. I would say that this is a game where it's it's too easy to it's too easy to move units and it is too easy to pop other people's units out of positions. Um, like one of the one of the things you do at the beginning of the game is everybody drafts a couple of these super awesome samurai mechs, and each of the mechs has a unique power. And a lot of the powers make it easy for them to just sort of displace or pe pick off opposing units. So um, the board state is just constantly changing right. um, from, from moment to moment. And if I was going to have like a core criticism to this game, it's that. It's that... In, in theory, this game is supposed to play very snappy, where moment to moment, you're just doing this very simple thing, right? And, and then once everybody's assigned their tokens, you play out the battles in a very straightforward fashion. You add up army strength on each side or fleet strength. You can add a combat card to kind of boost your value if you have one in your hand. Um, and then you resolve these battles in a very straightforward fashion. But the problem we discovered is that because things are changing so rapidly every time it comes back to me i have to really think through everything again right. 
And this is this is something I'm really struggling with because I can't tell if it's a crit problem with the game or a problem with my game group. But like we, this is supposed to be a 75 minute game, and it took us three hours, right? And, <laughs> wow. And it just it just dragged and and dragged and dragged. And I think that if it was a 75 minute game, we would have loved it. But at three hours, it's just way too long for how chaotic and turbulent it felt. Um, right. right. And Is this just uh, analysis of what to do, or what was slowing you guys down? That's a big part of it. And again, it might just be something that's characteristic of our group. I don't know if you guys suffer this in your groups, but... Um... I mean, one reason my group likes to play games, obviously, is for the intellectual challenge of it. I mean, we're not, I wouldn't say that we're hyper competitive, but we're trying to win. And so every turn you take, you're trying to think like, okay, what's my best move? And in this game, you have to kind of reconsider that every time it comes around to you. And then it almost feels like that mental effort wasn't worth it because by the time it comes around to you again, things have changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, would this be something that having a smaller player, like with three players, would it maybe right. be more acceptable because then there are only two people changing the bo- the board state before it's your turn again? Uh, is maybe. it the sort of thing with four players, it's just too much randomness? Maybe, maybe. Okay. And and with three players, it has the additional advantage that there's there's actually fewer rounds that you go through in the game. Um, so it, it really will. I think people have even said that the three-player game is the shortest of the player counts. Um but it, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, there's, there's parts of it that I really like. So, for example, those action cards that you can get, that you can play, they really take that They're very swingy, but I think it fits perfectly. Like, that's very Ameritrash. Those are the things I wanted to ask about, because that's what got my attention. I love, I love that sort of take that rules-breaking stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. So does that yeah. feel super thematic, and is it a lot of fun to pop people with those? It is, but I can see, like, um, people who... Like, I'm going to pull out one of my games here. Like, in Clockwork Wars, there's a, a strong contingent of people that really hate Clockwork Wars, and I totally get it because they hate the, the espionage cards. Oh, right, they're sure. Just, they're just so swingy, and they're really powerful, right? But th- this And they're hidden, feels... too. Like, that's the that's thing, right. too, is, is you right. never... In some games, it's out there for everyone to see. So if somebody takes a super powerful take that, you right. know what it is, you know they've got it. Uh, but it's another thing entirely when they draw it secretly and you don't know that it's in play, which is and how that, espionage works. Yeah. Yeah, and that and this game has that in spades. So mm-hmm. like one of the guys in our group, Dave, was really driving up the influence with four different clans. Like I don't know how he did it, but he just had super strong political influence with four clans. And the advantage there is that you get kind of like this constant income of victory points throughout the entire game, mm-hmm. uh, whereas. The battle strategy relies that you continually have to win battles over and over, which is tough, right? Because board position is shifting so much. Um, but then we discovered that there's a whole bunch of cards in that deck that can really just trash you. Like Propaganda is a card that basically drops a person's influence across all of their clans by a significant amount. So by the end of the game, we had totally erased his his you know influence with those clans. And if that was part of his long-term strategy and he was depending on that to win the game, it would be incredibly frustrating, right? Right. And and this is where I think, again, if it was a 60, 75-minute game, nobody would have a problem with that. They'd be like, yeah, this game is just supposed to play like that, fast and loose and kind of crazy. But when it lasts you know, two to three hours, I don't think that that jibes with, with the, the craziness of the game. Right. Uh, what do the clans do? Like, why are there for? Are they just uh, like victory point tracks, or does each one have a unique function? No, and I th- I, you, I'm glad you bring that up, Tom. I think that 
Um, the clans, there's no difference between them whatsoever. They're purely generic. It's yeah. just really different names and colors. And I think they are a reflection of the the hyper streamlining that went into this game, right? Um, did we did we mention like Neon Gods the other day? Like, I know how... the City of Remnants reboot. Uh, yeah. I've, I yeah, but I, I yeah, but I, I haven't played it. But I know we did talk about it at one point. Yeah, and I, I I haven't played it either. But again, the critique I've heard of it is that they hyper streamlined City of Remnants and took out all the cool stuff, right? Um, and I, I feel that that's maybe what happened here is that there was an initial version of this game that was more complicated, where the clans had different unique powers so that if you had influence with this particular clan it gave you a bonus i think the game would have benefited from that um mm-hmm. i also think that the different planetary locations you're fighting for all just feel really the same like there's there's not much excitement like oh like the card art is beautiful and they have really cool names like oh we're fighting over the monastery of blah 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 it's like this sounds <laughs> awesome but then it's just like it's just an icon that's the same icon as you see on the other cards um Minimally, I think they should have had some planets that pop out and you look at it and you're like, whoa, that one's worth a lot more than the other planets are, right? Because in an area control game, that's really exciting. Now everyone's got their eye on like this really sweet target and it creates this interesting question of whether you should go for it or maybe leave it to everybody else to fight over so you can get all the other the other stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Right. But it's hyper balanced. It's hyper streamlined. Uh, it's got a lot of minis, it looks like. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the mechs minis are really cool. They're not, uh, there's a major, major problem with them, which a lot of people point out, which is, you know how in Rising Sun and Blood Rage, the minis um, also come with those awesome plastic rings that you get? Yeah, that, so you know so... whose player it belongs to, which player it belongs to, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they they don't have those in this. Oh. <laughs> well, wait, how do I know which one is yeah. yours and which one is Mike's? <laughs> you know, you yeah. yeah. remember which one is which. Yeah. <laughs> what you do is you do what I did, which is you go on eBay and you find this guy who has printed out colored, uh, uh, you know, circles for with his 3D printer and is selling them for ten bucks. And you specifically buy specifically for Starship Samurai. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and you buy it before you play it with your game group, because otherwise everyone's going to be fucking really mad because it, it's it's such a problem. Um, the other thing that you need to do if anyone gets this is is you, what I, we did is we printed out a sticker that shows the strength of the samurai because they all have different strengths associated with them. The ships are all the same, but the samurai are all different. And instead of creating a situation where I'm constantly asking Mike, hey, Mike, what's your how strong is right. that samurai? How strong mm-hmm. is it? Oh, it's a five. Okay, you just you just need to print out a sticker that has that number on it and put it on the samurai. That's that's one of the things that drives me crazy about minis is they intentionally make it difficult to present. Like that that space that real estate could be used to present information. Instead, right. it's used to present artwork at the expense of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the, yeah. I hate minis so, so hard because of that kind of thing. Uh, what do you think well, about like stuff like hero clicks, where there's like a clicky base at the bottom and hit and hit points and right? stuff like yeah. that? Right. Yeah, that's yeah. like just trying to have your cake and eat it too. And it's, it's, <laughs> it, yeah, I just feel like it feels so chintzy too. Those little whiz kids click things around. Like I haven't ever spent much time with those, but they. I guess I've. You know what? Mage Knight might be the only game I know of where I have that for the cities. 
Um, right. And it feels totally shoehorned in because right. it's a WizKid product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, it, always, it always bothered me in Heroclix that you have to pick up the mini, flip it down, and then, oh, I'm not quite in the same spot where he just was, even though it's a minis game. <laughs> oh, right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, the, you mentioning those colored rings also makes me think of, and this is a mistake that I am absolutely aghast when I see it, but I can understand why it doesn't bother some people and why either, even some designers would just skip past it. But it, it, it never ceases to amaze me when I see a game where we are each a different color, but there is no representation in front of us on the table for what color we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there's a super there's a super like what did I play recently I played something recently where you just take one of the colored discs that's your color and you just put it in front of you like even something like that and I think a lot of games too count on you having your stock of cubes that are your color or whatever in front of you but any game where it doesn't show on the table in front of me what color I am that's just inane that's ridiculous to me uh, and, and it's like remembering to whom each samurai belongs to. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you guys have played uh, Flashpoint, the firefighting game. Yes, yes. It gives you a, just a little cardboard thing with your color you set in front of you. It has no other purpose. Oh, but see? Identif- yeah. But that's necessary, right? Yeah, exactly. Because they couldn't find a more functional way to do that. They had to come up with that, right? Yeah, yep. you're this mm-hmm. color. Yeah, so. Uh, all right, well, Hassan, you didn't sell me on it. Well, you know, I, like I said, I, it, part of it could be that we're, we were just too slow. Like, you know, I... I it could be that if if we played this again and we just were like, let's not think about it too much, guys. Let's just kind of we know that it's a pretty swingy <laughs> game. Let's just play it fast, right? Uh, that but, never works, though. By the way, I don't know about your experience, yeah. but because we have some players who are super slow, they reboot at the beginning of every turn. Uh, <laughs> and and if I were to ever say, hey, look, let's just play it fast, no, everyone would be like, yeah, okay, fine, we'll do it. And then they wouldn't do that. Uh, I can't imagine ever. Because it's <laughs> right. it's so ingrained in some people to play that way that it, it they can't override their programming, their their essential nature, uh, I think. so. Yep. All right, Starship Samurai. So this game I want to talk about, I've and I feel uh, – I don't feel bad bringing it up, but I feel a little underqualified because I've only played it once, but then I'm – and, and it's not a cheap game to get, but you can get it. But then I bought it because I'd been thinking about it so much. And the word I would use to describe it, and I'm going to need Hassan to help me with this, and uh, is it's weirdly beguiling to me, and I'm not entirely sure why that is. So, Mike, do you know Concordia at all? I do. I've never, I've never played it, but okay. uh, we have it at the store. Now, when you have it at the store, is it the base version, or is that big-ass like, uh, Concordia Venus box? Do you know? Uh, we just have the base, not the okay. giant one. Because what they did is they released Concordia, and it's, uh, I think, 2013. It's an old game. Uh, and then there were a couple of expansions, one of which was called Venus. And the base game is hard to find. Uh, I think the base Venus expansion might be out of print, also hard to find. But last year, they released Concordia Venus, which is the base game with the expansion packaged together. It's a big box. It's like uh, I had to pay 80 bucks for it. Um, and so that is relatively easy to find. Um, so I bought that, and I'm not entirely sure why I like this, because it's a super straightforward and easy to, to teach, easy to learn, a little difficult difficult to master, uh, straight-up Euro, right? Like, this, this, is, this is quintessential Euro, wouldn't you say, Hassan? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's I think it's a great example of a euro. Now, and you said your group your group you said you really like it, right? 
Yeah, yeah, I love. I, I would put this in my top ten. It's it's, and it's maybe my favorite Euro. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I here, let me just throw this at you, and we'll talk about it. Why? Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that the the core of it is that it's. I mean, we throw around this term a lot, and sometimes it doesn't mean very much, but it's very elegant. It's it, it's got a really snappy rule book. It's something like four pages, right? Um, yeah, it's a folder. And it, yeah. And it's it is pretty easy to teach, and yet, like you said, it is difficult to master. I think every time I play it, I I feel like I'm unfolding more of the strategy and understanding more of the game, and that's a very satisfying feeling. And I'm not I don't feel like rules complexity is interfering with my ability to to slowly master it. It's it's straightforward. All that's interfering with with my inability to master it is my own intellectual, you know, limitations. Right. right. It's not like you don't understand the rules or you didn't realize that or you have to learn how this works. Yeah. Like once you've taught someone, all the pieces are there. It's up to you to sort of piece them together and see how they work together. Yeah. 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 Um, how would you de- so? How about calling it a deck builder with territorial control? Like what? <laughs> what would you? What's the one line presentation of Concordia? I think that's that's tough because yeah it's 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 an economic game in terms of exchanging resources for resources and it's got a little bit of area control it's got a a map to play with and I always love maps it's got some weird deck building going on but it doesn't play like a traditional deck builder um it's pretty cool so here's one so one well well so I think in terms of why I really responded to it uh, and elegance is a great word for it, and I want to pinpoint one specific game mechanic. Um, a lot of times in a game where you're going round robin, when it's your turn, you do maybe two actions or three actions. And the reason that you do that, I think, is because a lot of the actions in the game are going to be boring or simple. Like, it's just move one piece to an adjacent territory. Who wants to do that? And then that was the sum total of my turn. And then it goes around the table, and other people are doing exciting stuff like fighting a battle or setting up some cool, lucrative trade or, or controlling a city. Whereas I just moved to an adjacent territory. That's boring. Ah. So so game designers get around that by saying, okay, you know what? Do two, or, do three actions on your turn. So that, <laughs> right. that one boring action, the move one piece, that's not the totality of my turn. I moved one piece, but I could also conquer a city. Concordia doesn't have to do that on your turn in concordia you play one card period and and that by the way i've now taught you guys how to play concordia all you now just have to learn what the cards do but all you do on your turn is you play one of these cards and that's it and it gets away with that because each of the cards just does has a huge effect on the game they're they're relatively simple but because of the game's elegance it can get away with saying you know what you only get to do one thing on your turn because everything you do in this game is pretty cool ultimately i i feel um so and these cards too uh everybody starts with the same cards but then and this is why i think i think of it chiefly as a deck builder although it does so many things one of the things you will do as you are playing is, of course, buy new cards. And each card is an action you can do. But, and here's something I don't think I've seen before to this level. I've seen games where a deck of cards represents, like, uh, a character's hit points, like its health. And when the, when the deck is empty, oh, your character's dead. What I haven't seen before is each card in your deck in Concordia is a scoring multiplier. Mm. So whenever I buy a card, not only is it giving me a new 
action that I can do when I play the card. And maybe it's duplicating one of the cards I already had, but that's great because now I can do it twice as many times. It's also multiplying how many points I get from one specific facet of the game. After we played it, one of the guys characterized it as a point salad, which I think is a little unfair because everything fits together so well and everybody's getting points from everything, but what varies is how many of a given card you've taken as far as scoring. So Hassan, if you have a whole bunch of cards for the amount of money you have left over, and I've only got one of those cards, we're both playing the same game where you get points from having money, but it's something that over the course of playing, you multiplied by taking those specific cards. Whereas maybe I was taking specific cards to spread myself thinly around the map and have one city in each province. Uh, so I have a bunch of those cards. Uh, and I just love how the scoring evolves separately for each player based on what cards he or she is buying. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think that it's... I mean, this may be my misinterpretation of point salad games or an unfair characterization of them, but I often feel that that implies that really anything you do in this game is going to earn you points uh, almost equally. But in Concordia, you absolutely have to have, I think, a strategy in the sense of specialization will, will benefit you because they're multipliers, right? And I, th I think because of that also, it really behooves you to pay attention to what other players are yes. trying to do. Yes. And if you if you just let someone run away with a whole bunch of, like, the colonist cards, well, it's your fault when they lap you, right? So, um, again, and that, by a, the, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Well, and that, by the way, is uh, another thing that I really like about it, that I think, you, yeah, there's some territory control, and there's a little bit of blocking, but it's not that substantial. You can't really shut somebody out. You can make... If they want to build in a city where you are, it's more expensive for them. They can still do it. Uh, they can always jump over your little movement space re relatively easily. Um, but the real interactivity is, A, that thing that you're talking about, Hassan, where – and that was my experience playing too. It's like, oh, these guys don't know how many of the cards I've got for Saturn or whatever for one scoring thing. <laughs> oh, I'm totally going to win the game. But then the guy who got you know eight cards for something I wasn't paying attention to, he clearly won, which I would have known if I'd been watching him get all these cards and I'd noticed how concerned he was with, with taking wine cities. Like that made <laughs> perfect sense. But I was just learning the game, so I, I didn't quite realize that. Um, but But – What's also interactive about it is the way the card play works. So we all start with the same eight cards, and uh, you play a card, and it's gone. You can't use that card anymore. It's in your discard pile. And I think you start with all your cards, right, Hassan? It's not like a do, – do you draw a hand, or do you have all your cards? No, you have all your cards, Yeah. which, which kind of makes your first decision um, – it can be – it can be kind of AP, you know, freezing yes. for people because they're like, ah. Right? And especially your first game, you don't know why you're supposed to do anything. Or, yeah, it is a little bit of being thrown in the deep end of the pool because you've right. got – it's got to be like eight cards or something, and they're all available to you on your first turn. Uh, but you play one of the cards, and it's gone, and now you can't do that anymore. And you've got seven other things, and it's, it's winnowing down the number of things you can do. But one of the cards – and I love this. It's I don't even remember the names of the. Here's my problem with the game. They're all the cards are named after weird Roman things, and I don't know the <laughs> difference between a praetor and a provost and a peltast and a gendarme and like I, there's all these weird names for the cards that make no sense to me. So the one I think called a tribune lets you take your cards back. Is that right? That could be right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So eventually you've got a card that you play, and that card says, "Hey, take all your discards back into your hand." And furthermore, that card gives you money based on how many cards are in your discard pile. So it behooves you to play that last, 
But sometimes you don't want to wait that long. You really need one of those actions back. Uh, so as far as a deck builder, it's not like use a card, discard it when your deck is empty, shuffle your discard, draw cards from the deck. It's take all your cards and then play them gradually one at a time, and they're gone until you use that Tribune card. Um, oh, but the interactive part is specific to one of these cards. And one of these cards, and it's called... It might actually be something simple like Diplomat, I'm not sure. But yeah. it lets you yeah. duplicate the action of whatever card is on another player's discard pile. So there might be a great card that lets me you know, move my colonists to grab more of the map. And I've played that, and I've used it, and it's gone, so I can't do that anymore. But if I wait on Mike to play his colonist card, because he hasn't done it yet, then I can play my Diplomat, and I can do it a second time, because Mike was stupid enough to leave it on top of his discard pile, <laughs> and I now have my Diplomat, and I, I can do it now. So I love that interactivity of keeping an eye on what cards the other players are using, so... And, and waiting to pounce on it with your diplomat, where you can copy. And they're doing the same to you, by the way. Uh, mm. So I love how that creates a sense of interactivity in a deck builder, and that it always matters. The cards I have in my hand are one thing, but the last card that you guys played, well, I still got that diplomat, that's also something available to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know, by the way, like I don't, I don't want to let Mike do the tax action or whatever, and I know he hasn't. He's still got his diplomat, so I'm going to wait until he gets rid of that before I do the tax thing. Right, yeah, you can sometimes try to wait people out. I think that's a really clever element to it, for sure. And that definitely happened in our first game, is there was a lot of, at least for me, a lot of, well, I want to do this, but it'll be better if I do it after the guy next to me has done A, B, or C. So there was right. a lot of that where what card I played wasn't necessarily the thing that would benefit me most, but something that would benefit me more if it were happening later uh, after a different situation when someone else had done something. Mm -hmm. uh, so here's here's one of my issues with it, Hassan. The map is just completely random from game to game and doesn't matter. True or false? <laughs> um, well, it's 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 definitely randomized in terms of the location of of the brick cities and the silk cities and all that. Um, but tell me what you're thinking about. Oh, like in one game, uh, and also there's multiple maps for sale for this too. Right. Uh, Concordia right. Venus comes with four different maps, and they're all wow. generally, I think they all have Greece involved somehow. Uh, but each, any given map, of course, is a different lattice work of connecting cities, and the difference, some cities connect over land, some over sea, and you've got a piece that uses the ocean connections and a piece that uses the land connections. Um, but the connections are different on each map, and furthermore, you take the resources, and they're, they're designed in such a way that the distribution of resources is ensured around the map, but the specific location of the resource will change from game to game. In one game, the silk, for instance, which I think is the most valuable resource, like, that might be in Asia Minor. And in another game, there's no silk in Asia Minor in one of those cities. Uh, so there's no sense of a map that you learn or that you get used to or that makes that's in any way consistent from game mm. to game. Uh, I see. And yeah. I guess that, for me, just kind of robs it of some potential personality. It also means you can't solve it, which right. because there's, there's literally – wait, is there literally no randomness in this game? Hold on, that can't be true. Well, I guess the placement of stuff is randomized. 
Yeah, and as the, the 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 order in which the cards come up is is randomized. Right, the cards I mean, that you buy. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, they're yeah. stacked, but the order in which they come up will be random. Yeah. No, I I mean I, this doesn't bother me at all. I I understand what you're saying in that it doesn't give you a sense of of an actual Europe or Greece or anything right. like that. But to me, it just makes every game feel like a brand new puzzle. And I, I really yeah. like that, you know, like one game, I know the last time I think we played this, there was one region on the map that had, I think two or three silk cities on it. And one of our, the guys in our group saw that and was the first to get there first to, you know, found those silk cities. Um, and so every time he activated that region, he was just, oh, he was just making a ton, right? Because then you can get that silk income and turn it in for cash and da-da-da-da-da. Right. And it's just, that wouldn't happen in another game necessarily, right? Right, so, that was a unique opportunity based on this procedurally generated map. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's got that fun thing I like in games with maps where you, that when you, when you set it up and once you reveal all the tiles... It, it, it's a good idea to sit back for just five, ten minutes and just take a look at what's going on on the map and maybe use that to formulate your strategy a little bit. Right, um, right. And yeah. say, okay, where am I going to try to race to? Because the beginning of the game very much feels like a race, and it's very thematic. It's like, oh, we're all racing to these territories, and I don't want to really get in your way because that's going to make things more expensive for me. So let's just all spread out to different right. places. Let's just all cooperate, <laughs> right? It um, really does feel like the third or fourth player, he's just going to have to go the place that everyone else hasn't gone. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other thing I love about this game is that the economy is, is, is tight, right? And it's yeah. a game that really rewards a both a long-term strategy in the sense of being like eventually you have to determine to yourself okay what am i going to try to specialize in in terms of collecting these these cards that are going to multiply my score at the end right. but in in the short-term sense it's got this really satisfying like three to four turn economic churn going where you're like okay three turns from now or four turns from now this is what i want to do okay what do i need to do in order to make that happen okay i have to play this card then this card then this card and then this and then because there's not a ton of ways for other players to interfere with you you can usually make that happen yes, and yes. it's extraordinarily satisfying and yes. then you have this cash in turn and you get a whole bunch of gold and then you buy two of the cards from the lineup that you exactly wanted and you're just like fuck yeah this game's awesome right and it has a lot of those <laughs> moments in it i think um, oh, you're making me want to play it right now <laughs> <laughs> and uh, i think and i think everybody is feeling that way because scoring is not open and then everyone's thinking they're winning yeah. and then the end of the game comes around and then there's that one guy who's like 50 points ahead of everybody else and everyone's like oh i thought i was doing really right. well <laughs> Yep, yep, exactly how I felt. Right. Uh, do you know the expansions for it? Like, it, do you do you know of any of them? No, and I'm really happy with the base game, and we don't get it to the table enough for me to have justified getting anything. I've I've looked at at the whatever the salsa expansion. I was going to say, yeah, there's one called salsa, which yeah, 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 <laughs> which I didn't realize it just means salt. Like I I had no idea. I was like salsa. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Um, and I think a lot of the expansions, too, there might be a Britannia one, are, are just more maps. Like, people yeah. love this game enough that they're willing to pay for more maps that uh, I think don't matter that much. I mean, because they're all 
they're all procedurally generated a million different ways in any given map anyway. Uh, I guess it's just thematic. Uh, actually, to be perfectly honest, the maps that come in Venus, there's four of them. Uh, one of them, I think, is like concentrated on Sicily and the little bottom of Greece, and one of them has, is just Greece. But then there's one that's the whole Mediterranean, and I can't yeah. imagine why you wouldn't play that one because there's so many right. different kinds of places. And again, it's just thematic. The actual layout... I'm sure it's different from map to map, and there might be one that works differently than others. But why not play on the whole Mediterranean instead of just Sicily? Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I think that's what a lot of the expansions are too, uh, or at least one of them is, uh, hey, just new maps. So I think I think the 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 clever thing in in salsa is that salt is like a wild resource, right? Isn't that the case? And oh, now I want it. I, oh. Yeah, and I think that's a module, or because it's it's it comes with like a couple like modules that you can pop in that's very euro game as well right um and i think people like that idea that there's a very very valuable resource out there that can serve as any as any resource oh well it's not in concordia venus dagnabbit <laughs> there's no modules in venus by the way all that there is in venus is the option to play uh and i think because the venus stuff is already built into it um the only uh, optional mode or variable mode is a uh, team play. Yeah, I was going to ask if you tried that. It seems crazy to me, but yeah, I, I can't. It seems like the sort of thing that once you and your group have maybe played it 50 times, uh, it's like okay, now let's try this way where right. we're two, where it's teams of two. Uh, but I can't imagine I would ever get uh, bored with what's called the individual game where we're all fighting against each other. So. All right. Uh, all right, so uh, Concordia, uh, guess what rating, uh, Mike? Guess what rating Concordia is on Board Game Geek? I'm actually looking at it, so I'd be cheating. <laughs> oh, okay, Hassan. What I meant to say? Guess what rating Concordia is on Board Game Geek? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's in the top 25. So you I, could, I don't, I don't know exactly. You could even bring it down to top 20. It's yeah, it's 18. 18. Um, I think as, it deserves it. I think it's great. Well, it's uh -huh. all, yeah, like, I, I, when I, so, when I went to visit one of my friends for a weekend, and we were just going to have a board gaming weekend vacation, and there were three of us there, uh, and we were on drastically different sleep schedules, so I got up one morning, which really was afternoon, uh, and stumbled into the main room and found that they had set up Concordia, which my friend had showed me, and he's like, this is super high rated on Board Game Geek, and he showed me the pieces, and I just was like, yeah, Euro, whatever, no <laughs> desire to play it. You know, I mean, you know, if you guys really want to, we'll play it. So I, I stumbled up into the, the room one morning after getting up and found that they had already pre-set it up. And there was the place at the table waiting for me. And I was just like, oh, God, I don't want to play this. You know, I, I tried to put on my game face and I didn't I didn't want to be a wet blanket about it. But inside, I was like, oh, they're going to make me play this dumb Euro uh, and ended up just <laughs> loving it. So completely understanding, yeah, why it's popular on Board Game Geek. Uh, and yeah, and so I've. Bought a copy, and I'm going to try to foist it off on everyone this Thursday when we play board games. So. I mean, I think an unfortunate element of its Euro trappings is the is maybe the theme and presentation and the the artwork on the box, right? Which doesn't totally jive people, right? Like, I feel like that could go on maybe any of about 50 different right. board games. Especially yeah, Euros. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, if this was if this was sci-fi themed and you just basically had like a planetary or a galactic map, I, right? I think I think people would dig it. And yeah, just and give the it, cards 
cool names. Yeah, make yeah. one of them the you know the the space general, and the other one is the <laughs> admiral, the fleet admiral, and then you've got the alien emissary and uh, the telepath. Sure, yeah. Why don't they do that? There's actually a tile that goes around the map, uh, and it again is part of the, this just really clever interactivity. There's a tile that passes around the map that when someone does. Uh, an action to collect resources from someplace. If they have the tile, they get extra resources, but right, right. now they have to pass the tile to the next player around the table, round robin. Cool. And so a lot of times you don't want to collect resources because the tile is right next to you and you're waiting for the other guy to do it so that it comes around to you and now you have it when you collect resources. But that tile is called something like the the Mega Praetor. Or it has just, <laughs> it makes no sense what it's called. I, Primus Maca like do you even know what it's called, Hassan? What is that tile called? <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> it really is something like Mega Praetor or Priminius Megatorius or it sounds like the name of a dinosaur. <laughs> and it, yeah, if that had been called something like the Bene Gesserit emissary in a Dune game, yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, but yeah. nope, I've got a Mega Praetorius or whatever. So, so how's the um the learning curve on this game? Because it sounds interesting to me, but I play with a lot of kind of newer board gamers. Oh, super. I, I mean. Wouldn't you say, Hassan, I mean, other than that daunting, okay, here are eight cards, choose the one you want to play, certainly the teaching of it, and as you are playing the cards and realizing how the economy works, it, it's pretty newbie-friendly, wouldn't you say, Hassan, or maybe not? I, I don't think it is. I mean, I think it's super elegant, but I think that there's two things that make it tough to, to teach and understand. Is One is that it, it's a game that will present you like Tom was just saying with a lot of options and mm -hmm. you will feel kind of flustered by that. Um, and it does take you, I think at least half a game to understand how the, how the pieces interlock with each other. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that is really tough for new people to handle is the, is the scoring, the end game scoring. Like, I don't, I think trying to explain how the scoring works, like, Hey, the, the, we're going to go through each of these different <laughs> card types and one's called Venus and one's called Mercury. And then, we're gonna you know like people's eyes glaze over mm -hmm. and they're, they're usually like oh, i'll just worry about that at yeah. the end it's yeah. like okay well you're gonna lose then so <laughs> right you know i mean that is a fair of... point yeah the the elegance is doesn't necessarily make it that friendly so, so fair enough mm -hmm. yeah. yeah it's no wingspan i think we can agree <laughs> yep. i think we brought this up last time tom i forget i can't remember which game it was you were talking about but this is a game where if you've played it, you're going to win versus people yes. who have played it. Yeah. But I think that 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 emphasizes and belies its its strength as a strategy game. Like this is a game that the more you play it, the better you get at it. And I, I think that tells you how good a game it is. Right. Um, mm -hmm. It makes Which, you want to play it more. Exactly. That accounts for me really finding it beguiling and wanting to sit down with it a second, a third, and a fourth time. Yeah. So. All right, so there you guys have it. Uh, we have a Wingspan, Starship Samurai, and Concordia. Uh, I think at least one of those we would all recommend. Well, we would variously recommend to various degrees. I guess all of them in various situations. <laughs> so uh, join us in two weeks. We'll be talking you get to you guys about more games. I am Tom Chick. I've been here with Mike Pullman and Hassan Lopez. And we'll talk to everyone next time. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>